Uh, it sure is good to be together. Happy Valentine's Day weekend. Men, if you didn't take good care of your significant other, your wife, uh, it is not too late on this Valentine's Day weekend. The stores are open still. All of you at the bridge joining us in Glendive and on the web, it's cool to be with you. If you have uh, kids with you right now who are over the age, uh, younger than the age of sixth grade, I'd recommend that they would move out to the kids' ministry now based on the subject matter at hand. And if you talk to people who were in both of the previous services this weekend, I think they would echo that same sentiment. And this is it. This is the end of this This Is It series, hearing from the King of Kings and the music of the King of Pop. And it's just been a hoot for me, I hope for you as well. Could I do a little show of hands, uh, sort of informal survey work? How many of you were surprised by this series? And that could be good surprised or bad surprised. Just surprised. Ah, good. I'd like to see that. How many of you are glad that we did this series? Yeah, lots of you. Cool. Great. One of the most fun, thanks for sharing. One of the most fun things I've heard from people over and over and over again through these five weeks is how they actually found their hearts to enlarge for the person of Michael Jackson. Now that was not at all an intentional aim of this series, but it's really fun to hear people talk about how God is enlarging the real estate of their hearts for people just like Michael Jackson, who we lots of times just write off as a freak or judge as something less than a human being, less than a person created in the image of God, less than a person who is immeasurably loved by God, less even than a person for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross for the purpose of bringing back to relationship with him. But it's true. It's true of Michael Jackson. It's true of your next door neighbor who irritates you sometimes. It's true of your classmates who drive you up the wall. All people, Michael Jackson, your neighbor, classmates, they're all human beings created in the image of God, immeasurably loved by God. People for whom Jesus Christ died on the cross because he loves them that much for the purpose of bringing them into relationship with him. And that is something that we are about as a community day in and day out. We're constantly inviting God to reshape, redraw, expand the real estate of our hearts so that we actually become, imagine this, non-judgmental. So that we actually become non-judgmental followers of Jesus Christ who choose at every turn to give people the benefit of the doubt, who choose at every turn to see people, all people, with the exact same love that Jesus Christ, that God has for them. And because it's Valentine's Day weekend, right? Valentine's Day specifically today, we thought it very appropriate that we delve into a love song of sorts, a Michael Jackson love song, nonetheless, The Way You Make Me Feel. So listen to this. Kiss me, baby, in the 
The way you make me feel, you really turn me on. You knock me off of my feet. My lonely days are gone. And how many of us hear lyrics like those? And how many of us have felt fear and anger about the messages we get from our culture regarding our sexuality? How many of us have been very concerned about the impact that those messages about our sexuality are having on our kids, for example? How many of us have been confused by all the differing messages that come at us regarding our sexuality and our expression of our sexuality? It gets a bit overwhelming, doesn't it? There's so much stuff flying at us regarding love and sex and the expression of our sexuality that it causes us actually to wonder, what in the world do we really believe about all of this? But frankly, God is not at all confused about love and sex and the expression of human sexuality, which is why I believe he chose to include a book like the Song of Solomon in the canon of his scripture, the sacred text, the Bible. If you've got one with you today, as a matter of fact, I just invite you to turn there right now. The Song of Solomon, it's right about the midpoint of your Bible in the Old Testament of the Bible, right after the book of Ecclesiastes, right before the book of Isaiah. We're gonna be hanging out in the book of Song of Solomon today. And maybe you've read the Song of Solomon before and you've got to the end and you thought to yourself, what in the world is that all about? And if you've done that, said that, you're not alone. Biblical scholars for thousands of years have wrestled with that very question. What in the world is that all about? They've wrestled with the purpose of the book. Some have even questioned the Song of Solomon's rightful place in the canon of Scripture. They wonder if it should even be in the Bible. And it's passages like this one that have aroused, uh, no pun intended, the controversy, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Check this out. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Put that in your Valentine's Day card, <laughs> men. And it gets better. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Solomon's saying he's just thrilled that his wife has all of her teeth. None of them are missing. Yes. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Now it gets dicey. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. I have no idea. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Now, a whole bunch of biblical scholars down through the ages have read passages, that very passage, and chosen to treat the book allegorically, assigning symbolic meaning to just about everything in the whole book. As you can imagine, this passage would be especially challenging for them, right? There were some early Jewish rabbis, for example, they took the Song of Solomon to be an allegory of the love between the Lord and the nation of Israel. Very interesting perspective. Some others have chosen to regard it as a love song between Jesus Christ and us, his 
church. Uh, they say that the man is Christ. They say that the woman is the church. Uh, they say that his kisses are the word of God. The woman's dark skin, well, that's the sin. Her breasts are the church's nurturing doctrine. Others have said that the breasts, the two fawns, are the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Perhaps the king and the high priest, perhaps the two stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandment tablets, even the Lord's Supper and baptism, perhaps. Now, all of those interpreters who make the Song of Solomon into an allegory, I believe they just can't accept the reality that the Holy Spirit would actually inspire a book of the Bible to communicate to human beings that sex between a married man and a married woman is a beautiful and fun and enjoyable and special thing that God chose to design for our very good pleasure to make us feel good. But that's exactly why the Song of Solomon exists in my view. Look at the last verse that I read from chapter 4. Before the dawn breezes blow and night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh, to the hill of frankincense. It's my view that that is not a guy who's dreaming about staying up all night and reading the Old and New Testament of the Bible. Instead, that's a husband who's dreaming of having sex with his wife all night long. Cool, right? That is a cool and beautiful thing. Sex between a married man and a married woman is beautiful. But for some reason, Christian people have had a very difficult time understanding and accepting that message. For way too many Christians, marital sex has been seen as some necessary evil, tolerated for the purpose of procreation and the control, the taming of our quote, unholy desires. Uh, a guy named Augustine, you've probably heard of him before, he argued that sex for any reason other than procreation was a sin. And he said that he wished God had never even invented sex. I'm going like, sucks to be you, right? <laughs> married couples, Christian married couples for far too long have been taught that sex should be rare and restrained. If you enjoy it too much, well then you cross into a line of being sinful. As a matter of fact, you know this, for a whole segment of the church, celibacy is actually considered to be more virtuous than marriage. That's how it came to be a requirement of the priesthood. Their flawed thinking was that spiritual leaders could not and should not be engaging in sexual relationships even within the confines of the God-ordained institution of marriage. Good grief. In the Victorian era, people covered up the legs of their furniture lest they stir up impure thoughts. And every single one of us sitting here, we'd like to think that we're way more advanced than those losers and that we've grown way beyond all that misunderstanding. But I got to tell you, we haven't. Leftovers of all kinds of that thinking still haunt us, warp our understanding and experience of sexuality, and cause us to literally miss out on God's best for us regarding sex and marriage. Get this. Your sexuality is one of the amazing and perfect gifts that God has given to you. In the context of the church, though, too often we get the impression that the only thing that God's word has to say about sex is no, 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 no. But I gotta tell you the truth. God's word on sex is a resounding yes, 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 yes. At the right time, with the right person. 
And it's a tragedy that within the church, it's often the only place that we don't hear about sex. But God is far from silent on the subject of our sexuality. His word on the matter is not always negative. I ask the question, why should our culture steal the God-given gift of sex from us and wave it around as if they were the ones who thought of it and as if they are the experts in the deal? Sex is God's gig. God is the sex expert. He thought of it, he made it, he set it into motion, which means that we as the people of God, we ought to be the ones who know better than anyone else what great sex is and be the ones to share that gift with the rest of our culture, not the other way around. Now let's get back to the Bible, the Song of Solomon. In case you're wondering, it's just a love story. It is a plain and simple love story. The two characters in the story are named Solomon, who you've heard of, and somebody who you probably haven't heard of, a woman named Shulamit. Now, Shulamit in Hebrew is just simply the feminine form of the masculine name of Solomon. So you think about it like this. Shulamit is to Solomon what Pauline is to Paul. And so the Song of Solomon is a love story of Solomon and Shulamit. Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. That's what we'll call him for the remainder of our time. And we gather from the story that Solomon, he owns a vineyard in a place called Lower Galilee near the town of Shunem. One day he's out inspecting his vineyards. He meets this farm girl as she is taking care of her family's vineyard. Now because of this farm girl's work in the vineyard, the sun has given her a dark and swarthy complexion. She is hot. And this is Solomon we're talking about, so he notices hot and swarthy, dark-complected woman, and he falls head over heels in love with her. He begins courting her. He visits her at her family's home in the country, and after a season of courting, she agrees to marry Solomon. It's fantastic. Just before the wedding, the king sends a wedding procession to bring his bride to the palace in Jerusalem. After her arrival, they marry. They have this enormous wedding banquet. And then, of course, the moment we've all been waiting for, the wedding night. And the wedding night is quite erotically described. We'll get to it in just a moment, if you can contain yourself. As with any married couple, though, all is not perfect in the land of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. Problems of sexual adjustment arise in their marriage. For example, we'll talk about this one in more detail in a few minutes as well. One night, Mrs. Solomon, she rejects Mr. Solomon's sexual advances. Men, ever had that happen to you? But instead of just rolling over and going to sleep, Mr. Solomon jets. Shalamet, she thinks about it for a while, and then she regrets her decision, of course, and she goes in search of her beloved. After finding him, they have a loving, beautiful, sexual reunion. After some time in the palace, Mrs. Solomon begins to yearn for a visit to her country home, an adventure that Mr. Solomon is in favor of, and the two journey together to her family's home where they enjoy the renewal again of their love covenant, sexually speaking. And that is the end of the story, at least as it appears on the pages of the Scripture. Now, as we study the book of the Song of Solomon... There are these overarching principles that apply to the sexual relationship inside the covenant of marriage, and we pull these right out of the Song of Solomon. First one is this one. For the married couple, get this, couples, there is no sexual expression that is unclean, invalid, or sinful. Get that. There is no sexual expression inside the bounds of marriage that is unclean, invalid, or sinful. Nothing, then, for married couples is off-limits. And we're going to actually watch that be played out in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon as we unpack three different 
scenarios from the text. And then there are two other guiding principles for sexual expression inside the covenant of marriage that sort of feed into that one. First one is that the sexual expression needs to be agreeable to both partners, not just one. There's no coercion when it comes to the sex deal. One partner's not imposing their wants, wishes, desires on the other one who doesn't want to participate in that way. It has to be agreeable to both partners. And this is right from the Song of Solomon. Two is that it meets both partners' needs. That it actually satisfies both partners sexually. And those principles are as valid for we married couples today as they were for Mr. and Mrs. Solomon thousands of years ago. We can learn from them. And so let's do just that. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Check this out. I am the spring crocus, blooming on, the, blooming on the Sharon Plain, the lily of the valley. Like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. Just in case you're wondering, that is a very erotic description of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon's wedding night. They wrote about it and put it on the pages of the Bible for all of us to look in on. And the way I promise you that they're making each other feel is very, very, very good, isn't it? Look at verse 3. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. That's where it all begins, isn't it? And I don't know how else to say it other than just to tell you he's talking about foreplay. That's what's in view. This is foreplay. Both of their sexual passions are aroused. In case you're wondering, apples in the ancient world, they're erotic symbols. And we see that their foreplay, it goes on for a while. And then look at verse 4. The text says, he escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. We see that because of this very pleasurable session of foreplay, their sexual passions have now reached the stage where it requires satisfaction through the act of sex itself. Now you're wondering, what do apples and raisin cakes have to do with sex? They're symbolic of sexual passion. Mrs. Solomon is actually expressing, Honey, it is time for you to satisfy all of this passion that you have stirred up and aroused in me through this quite intense foreplay session. And Mr. Solomon, he's pumped, isn't he? He's like, yes! He is more than happy to answer Mrs. Solomon's request for sexual satisfaction. Look at verse 6. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Solomon embraces his wife for the first time in this way. And their marriage is consummated. They are one. And folks, this is God's beautiful and perfect design for sexual expression and satisfaction unfolding right here on the pages of the sacred text of the Scripture. Sexual expression in any other setting other than inside the marriage covenant is a short-circuiting. It's a derailment of God's intention for the gift of sex. That's not where it belongs. It belongs inside the covenant of marriage only. Now, Mrs. Solomon, after this sexual intercourse, she does and says an interesting thing after her first sexual encounter. Look at verse 7. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. 
Because of what Mrs. Solomon has learned from her first sexual encounter with her husband, she actually challenges other women that their sexual passions are not to be treated cavalierly. They should not be awakened. They should not be stimulated until and unless they can be satisfied and fulfilled. She's saying, ladies, handle your sexual passion with the utmost of care. Do not be riling it up, feeding it, and so on, unless and until you are within God's intended boundaries for them to be satisfied. And she's saying that right on the heels of her honeymoon, in the midst of her honeymoon. It is a beautiful sexual encounter, and we get the privilege of learning from these guys. There's application that we take out of this. First one is this. We didn't read about it in the section of the text we read, but if you go back on your own, write this down, chapter one, verses 16 and 17, we actually see a description of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon's bedroom. Now Solomon is the man when it comes to the wedding, marriage, chamber, bedroom thing. He built it, or he had it built, especially for them. Now you're going like, what in the world talking about bedrooms when we're talking about sex? But husbands and wives, Your bedroom setting really matters when it comes to a satisfying and pleasurable sex life. Your bedroom setting matters. Mr. Solomon built a special place for all of this to go down in. He helps us get that. Your bedroom couples should be the place that you reserve as a special set-aside place for your sexual expression to unfold. Now, it doesn't have to be the only place that your sexual expression unfolds. But it's probably the primary place, isn't it? Would you treat it as a retreat of sorts? Put your imagination to good use, decorate it in a way that sets both of you, quote, in the mood. Put a lock on the door to keep little peeping eyes at bay. You will scare your children. (laughs) Now, folks, this is a challenge, I know. But if your sex life is in the tank, couples, take a look around at your bedroom setting. Are there clothes strewn all over the place? Are there dressers piled up with stuff, unfinished projects laying around the room here and there? If so, you might just be surprised to find out that by keeping your bedroom, which by the way is probably one of the only sacred spaces you have in your home, by keeping it neat and in an atmosphere of specialness, set-asideness, that's not a word, I made it up, that is one less obstacle to the great sex that God wants you to have as a married couple. Check out your bedroom. And then we talked about it briefly, another point of application. We talked about it very briefly in the summary section. But this issue of foreplay is of critical importance when it comes to a pleasurable sexual experience. It just is. And I want to tell you the truth that there is no how-to manual for great foreplay. You have to learn it. That requires time. That requires experience. That requires, couples, communication between you and your spouse. The great sex that God wants married couples to have, it can only be developed by the two of you working and learning together and from each other. That means, men and women, married men and women, that you're going to need to actually tell your spouse what is pleasing and what is arousing to you so that you can both be as ready as you possibly can for the intercourse deal. You're going to actually have to say it. That feels good. I like that. Mind reading does not work, folks. It does not work. And men, just in case you didn't know it already, you are going to have to work harder on this than your wife does. You're going to have to work harder on the foreplay deal than your wife does, okay? You know the deal, right? For we men, it's like, dink, I'm ready, right? 
Mr. Happy is standing tall, reporting for duty. No effort required whatsoever. And wives, please do not be afraid to show and teach your husband where and what to touch to bring you the most pleasure. And husbands, simmer down for a moment, right? Let your wife's sexual passion catch up a bit with yours. Just because you're ready does not mean that she is. Uh, I've heard people uh, equate this this way. Men are microwave ovens, women are crock pots in the foreplay deal. Ding! Done, right? Enough about foreplay? Any questions? All right. Let's move on to a second glimpse of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. This is Mrs. Solomon. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. Now, in that first encounter we looked at just a moment ago, Mr. and Mrs. Saul, that's their honeymoon, right? They're newlyweds, right? Everything is new and perfect and just as it should be. But then in this section, Mr. and Mrs. Solomon begin to adjust sexually to their marriage commitment. Here's the story. Mr. Solomon gets in late one night from a meeting, and he immediately tries to put the moves on Mrs. Solomon, but she's got all the excuses, doesn't she? She responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? Solomon's thinking, well, no, I don't need you to get dressed again. I'm glad your robe is off. One less thing to get in the way. She says, I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? Solomon's going like, I wasn't planning on going outside, but if you really want to, we sure could. These are lame excuses that Mrs. Solomon gives. And Solomon, he tries, he tries, he tries to communicate his need, his longing for his wife. She's having none of it, though. Finally, she gets it. But by that time, Mr. Solomon is gone, and she can't find him anywhere, right? And they're going like, oh, great, how do we apply that? What in the world? First thing, there are indeed sexual adjustments that married couples make all throughout their life together. We get, as Christ followers, the privilege of working on our attitudes about sex before we're married. But we do not, as Christ followers, get to practice in advance of marriage. That means, then, that our married life will be spent on a very steep learning curve related to our sex life. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to get it right. But over time, both husband and wife, because of their commitment to each other and their commitment to learn and teach, we get it. We dial it in. But get this, folks. It takes effort. You're going to exert effort in order for your sex life to be as good as God wants it to be. But like anything else in life, anything worthwhile requires effort. So invest, invest, invest. And, and it's fun investment, right? Now, let's talk very candidly about Mrs. Solomon's refusal to make love to Mr. Solomon, the late night deal, the late night rejection, we'll call it. Any married guys in the house? You don't have to raise your hand. No, don't. Wives, could I just tell you something? Please, please, please be very, very careful about refusing your husband's sexual advances. Be very, very careful. 
Now, some of you women are sitting there right now, and you are mumbling under your breath, you, and you're talking to me because you're really mad that I just said that, right? You self-serving, right? And I'll take that, but, but hear me out, please. I get it, women. There are times and there are circumstances that absolutely demand a no to your husband. But when you say no, please do not be like Mrs. Solomon offering lame excuses. I ran across a letter a husband wrote to his wife after a frustrating year of having his sexual advances refused. Here's what it says. To my loving wife, during the past year I have tried to make love to you 365 times. <laughs> Sound familiar? I have succeeded only 36 times. In case you're wondering, this is an average of once every 10 days. The following is a list of the reasons why I did not succeed more often. It was too late, too early, too hot, too cold. It would wake the children, the company in the next room, the neighbors whose windows were open. You were too full, you had a headache, backache, toothache, or the giggles. You pretended to be asleep or were just, quote, not in the mood. You had on your mud pack. That might be fun. It's not an excuse, that might be fun. You watched a late TV show, I watched a late TV show, or the baby was crying. During the times I did succeed, the husband writes, the activity was not entirely satisfactory for a variety of reasons. Six times you chewed gum the whole time. <laughs> On occasion, you watched TV the whole time. Once you told me to hurry up and get it over with. A few times I tried to wake you to tell you we were through. And one time I was afraid I had hurt you because I actually felt you move. He writes, honey, it's no wonder I drink too much. Signed, your loving husband. Wives, I get it. We get it. We understand. There are times, there are circumstances that demand, that require a no to your husband. But would you ladies please keep your powder dry for those rare occasions? Here's why. It has a reason, actually. Because your no's, if they continue too long, and if they're merely lame excuse after lame excuse after lame excuse, your husband will begin to take that very, very, very personally. He will think that it is all about him. He will think that you are rejecting him. He will think that you do not love him like him, care about him. And on those occasions, women, when you do have to play the no card, those rare occasions, do it in a way that assures your husband that it is not personal, that it is not him that you're not rejecting him. You might even say, honey, I can't right now because, and fill in the blank, but I would be delighted to make love to you on this time, in this place, in this, insert a position even, if you'd like to. Right? Suggest an alternative. And then wives, uh, check, check this out. And this is just a suggestion. On those rare occasions when you do have to play the no card, Ask yourself, is there something else I could do besides the sexual intercourse deal to satisfy your husband's sexual need? Just think about that. Take the lid off the box and, well, have fun with that one. Now, husbands, before you get all like jubilant and excited about your pastor telling your wife to only play the no card on rare occasions and when she does to think of creative alternative means to satisfy her sexual needs, listen to this very carefully, please. It's absolutely true that Mrs. Solomon had lame excuses for Mr. Solomon's late-night come-ons. But Mr. Solomon was not exactly respectful of Mrs. Solomon, was he? He got home from a long and busy day at the office, and the very first thing he wanted to do when he got home was get it on, right? Now, husbands, 
It is our job, it is our responsibility to consider and be concerned about the kind of day our wife had while we were off at work. It is not all about you just having your sexual needs met at the drop of every hat, every whim. Your kids, think about this, your kids might have been monsters. They probably were all day long. Your wife probably dealt with that. Your house was probably a mess because you know how mornings go, right? She probably was the one who cleaned that up in all likelihood. She herself might have had a very long, difficult, arduous day at the job that she holds and came home just flat exhausted. Now, guys, we are ready for sex in a moment's notice. But for our wives, tonight's epic lovemaking session started this morning at 7 o'clock or perhaps earlier when her feet hit the floor. She, your wife, must be in the right frame of mind in order to enjoy and get into sex. And husbands, we have to realize that. We have to take all of that into account if we hope to ever have a satisfying sexual relationship with our wife. And you play the primary, the most significant role in helping your wife remain in a frame of mind that allows her, that frees her up to favorably respond to and enjoy and appreciate and look forward to your sexual advances. That's your responsibility, men. And I know you do not want this message to end, but let's land on one final view of the text from the Song of Solomon, and this is where we will stop. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 11. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. There the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old which I have saved for you, my lover. Oh, I wish you were my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. Then I could kiss you no matter who was watching and no one would criticize me. Now that gets a little weird, doesn't it? <laughs> and I don't have time to go into great levels of detail about this, but what Mrs. Solomon is saying to Mr. Solomon is, I long for the intimacy like with you, my husband, like a brother. I don't want there to be anything in between us. I want there to be honesty and transparency. And she says it in a very weird way, but that's what's loaded up in those sort of peculiar words. I would bring you to my childhood home, and there you would teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, my sweet pomegranate wine. Your left arm would be under my head. Your right arm would embrace me. We know what's going on there, right? Promise me, O woman of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. We've heard that before as well. And in this section, this reflection, Mrs. Solomon, she's saying to Mr. Solomon, let's get away from it all. She wants to take her husband out to their country home where they first met, where their romance was originally kindled. And it's evidence that she has in mind there in the vineyard of Galilee that they could see the vegetation beginning to spring to life and actually find the opportunity to make love in the out of doors, something they could not do around the palace in the city. They probably could, but they might get caught and in a whole heap of trouble. She says, let's go to the country and let's have sex outside. She knows that in the open fields of Galilee, the, there's these mandrakes. They would heighten their sexual experience all the more. Now, by way of application, first thing we see is a willingness on the part of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon to not get into a rut in their sex life. These two are immensely creative. 
and married couples, we should be just as creative as they are. If you read earlier on in the Song of Solomon, you'll notice that Mrs. Solomon, she actually dances erotically before Mr. Solomon. Now, here we see her introducing the idea of having sex outside in the country. Now, I'm not saying that just because this is in the Bible that we all ought to go do that, though you might. But it just simply gets to a willingness on the part of a husband, on the part of a wife, to be creative, to experiment, introduce newfound levels of ecstasy into your sex life. Remember, God designed, God gave you the deal for enjoyment. So have fun with that. Take advantage of that. Take the lid off of the box. Don't get into a rut. And then there's this bit. Husbands and wives, we notice that Mr. and Mrs. Solomon, they go away to get alone together. You should do that as well. We all should do that. Have a date night. If you can do it once a week, that's ideal. If that's not possible, do it as often and regularly as you can. And husbands, that is your deal to arrange. It's not another thing to deposit on the plate of your wife. You, husband, find the babysitter. You arrange the location. You set the whole thing up. I know, finances are tight, so spend the money on the babysitter and eat at McDonald's if that's what you're left with. Just get out, get alone as a couple and do that regularly. And then take weekends, schedule them to get away, just you and your wife. You don't have to go out of town. You can send the kids away and you can stay home. Uh, book a room at a local hotel just for a change of pace and scenery. It doesn't matter when, where, how you do it. Just get away, get alone with your spouse. Invest, invest, invest in your spouse. Why don't you take your things and set them aside? Just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer if you would. Just speak to the Lord about what it is that you're thinking about. You can do that now. The truth is that sex is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful, God-ordained, God-initiated deal. And I know this is a very wide audience. People of all ages and a variety of relationships at all different stages of life. Every single one of us here, we have our own hang-ups and longings and issues and desires. And I know it'd be real easy to leave these issues alone, right? Not risk the embarrassment of talking about this kind of stuff in this kind of setting. Not risk the offense, not risk the criticism, so on. But we have to ask the question, can we really ignore this stuff? This is God's word. The Song of Solomon is God's word, and it is a very direct and straightforward message regarding our sexuality that God ordained, that God made, that God gave us. Which all adds up to me that we can't, as the church, just leave this alone. The stakes, they're way too high. And so I just want to invite you in the quietness of these moments, no matter your stage, no matter the level of relationship you're in or at, to just make some commitments, you and God. Drive some stakes in the ground, seal some deals with Him. And first off, I want to talk to those of you who are young. If you haven't done it already, 
Would you make a commitment right here, right now, today to save your first sexual encounter for your wedding day? Just save it. You'll be so glad you did. Save it. And if you're here and you're an adult and you're a single person, you and the Lord decide right here, right now that you're not going to give in to the pressure of people and culture around you regarding your sexuality, regarding your sexual expression. Go against the flow. Swim upstream. You'll be really glad you did. And maybe you're a person who's here and you've stepped outside of God's plan for your sexual expression. You made mistakes. It's not the end of the world, folks. God's forgiveness is right here. Abundant and ready. Waiting for you to ask and receive it. Jesus Christ forgives you right now if you'll ask him to. And there's something cool about the forgiveness deal. By virtue of you asking for forgiveness, what you're declaring to God is that you don't want that same thing to happen again. You're going to go in the complete opposite direction. You're going to run 180 degrees in the other way from that. And that's going to require more from God than just forgiveness. That's going to require his strength as well, isn't it? His help. And so in the same moment that you're asking for his forgiveness, ask him for his help to do the sex deal his way. And maybe as you sit here, you're wrestling, you're struggling with some sexual sin. Whatever it is, ask God to forgive you. Tell him you need his help to overcome it. And then ask a brother or sister in Christ to walk along with you on that journey. Help you. Ask somebody to help you live a life of purity. Those of you who are here and you're married, could I challenge you to continue developing the sexual component of your relationship? Don't just let it fall into a rut. Walk out those doors as soon as we're done and say, honey, can we talk about a few things? Just stop sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it and pretending it's not there. Could we just talk about a few things? Engage the conversation. Engage the learning curve. Engage creativity. And then you who are parents, would you please talk to your kids about this stuff? Please. And start talking to them at the earliest possible age. And look them straight in the eye and you teach them and you tell them how to guard their hearts, how to guard their minds, how to guard their bodies. Please, whatever you do, do not relegate that deal to the school. That's your job, parents. It is not the school's job. And then after you're done with that very frank and candid conversation that I hope you have more than one time, grab them, scoop them up, and hold them close, give them a big hug, and you tell them how valuable they are. How valuable they are to you, how valuable they are to God, how valuable they are to their future spouse. And then I know in gatherings like this, there are people who have been wounded and disappointed because of the sex deal. God is your healer in that thing. God is 
your healer. Ask him to heal you. Ask him to restore your soul. Ask him to put back together the broken pieces. And ask him to lead you into relationships that bring wholeness, wellness, life. Life the way that God intended it to be lived. And so God, we as a people, we as a community, we commit that whatever stage, whatever age, whatever relationship place that we're in, that our sexuality is submitted to you, to who you are, the inventor and the creator, the giver of sex. Because God, our heart is that we go about this your way, in your time. You have a plan. You didn't just wind it up in us and then turn it loose and expect us to just deal with it. You set a course, a channel, an opportunity God, I pray that we as a people embrace the opportunity that you gave us, sexual expression inside of the bounds of the covenant marriage relationship. And that God, in every single facet of our lives, including sexual expression, that it would be pleasing to you, immensely pleasing to you, God. The sex deal, it's ultimately about your glory, isn't it, God? It's about your glory. You created it, you invented it, you gave it to us. And it points to your nature, your character, as a good God who loves us and cares about every detail of our lives, even our pleasure. And we say thanks. Whoa. Thank you so much, God. We're yours and we love you. Our lives are our offering to you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. And the church said, amen.